think one of the great things about EV charging is that unlike our current fueling model, which is we go to a disgusting gas station, we put a nozzle in our vehicle, and then we watch the meter tick over, EV charging is going to allow for a whole variety of different business models. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about the challenges and surprising solutions we find as the world moves closer to widespread vehicle electrification. The shift away from gas-powered cars and trucks is happening, though I think it can be argued how fast that will be. Once all the folks who insist on no-gas vanity plates have bought EVs, how long before my parents in Bossier City, Louisiana get a Tesla? It reminds me of my boss who owned a water recycling company in Fort Worth. The city provided him with two cans for trash and recycling, and he always stuck all trash in both cans. I'll just let that irony sit there for a beat. My guest and I discuss these customers a lot. How do you make users understand that electric vehicles need to be charged each time they're parked? And much like my guest from episode 94, how are you going to get electric vehicles charged when the owner may not have a two-car garage? In earlier episodes, particularly my transmission panel in episode 80, we discussed the challenges of providing enough power for an electric vehicle in every home. My guest today cites a prediction from Elon Musk that says we'll need 50% more power to address full electrification. That's 50% more power plants, substations, everything. His company has a solution he believes sidesteps these two issues, the grid limits and availability of charging stations. It's a solution he says has drivers driving on sunshine for free. My guest today is Desmond Wheatley, Chairman, President, and CEO of Beam Global, an electric vehicle charging solution provider based in San Diego. Beam's EV Arc chargers are a fully deployable solution. It comes with the charger, battery storage, and solar panels that shade vehicles while they soak up the power to fuel them. While these chargers can be grid-connected, Desmond believes their modularity and self-sustainability solve about a half-dozen challenges facing electric vehicles today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Desmond Wheatley. We're here with Desmond Wheatley, President, CEO, and Chairman of Beam Global. And Desmond, you claim you're the lowest cost, fastest deployed electric vehicle charging station in the world. How so? To be clear, our claim is that we're the lowest total cost of ownership. If you think about an electric vehicle charging station, it has several contributions to its total cost. You have to acquire the charging station, but then the really expensive and disruptive part is all the construction and electrical work and permitting and environmental impact and everything that goes into installing that in a parking space and bringing an electrical circuit to it. Now, Naturally, people didn't build parking lots and streets with enough energy or electrical energy supplied to them to fuel vehicles or to charge electric vehicles. So if you want to put a charger out there in the traditional method, you're going to have a lot of construction and electrical work and all the permitting and everything that goes along with that. And then when you're successful with that process, you now start to get an increase in your utility bill. That's going to increase the kilowatt hours you consume, so you're going to get charged for that. And then quite often push you into sort of demand.
land charge territory and other ways that the utilities can bill you a lot more for that electricity. Our products are deployed with no on-site construction at all. Because they generate and store all of their own electricity and deliver it to an electric vehicle just like a grid-tied charger does, we don't need to go through that permitting, that construction, the electrical work, the engineering, the consulting, and all the other things that you would normally do, never mind the soft costs of the disruption associated with that process. And then they'll faithfully charge your electric vehicle for 20 years without you ever getting a utility bill, none of those kilowatt hour or demand charges that I mentioned to you, taxes and all the other things that go along with it. So you're driving on sunshine for free. So there are many inputs to cost reduction. And when you put them all together, we're fairly confident that we will be much less expensive than all but the least expensive and least used chargers installed today. I guess the first question is, why be 100% renewable or limit yourself to being 100% renewable? Do you have an option to plug in, say, if you're in a location where it's highly trafficked and there may be multiple cars coming in and out per day? All of our products are technically capable of buying and selling from the grid. I don't mean that as a financial transaction. I mean that as a term of art used to mean we can take power off the grid and we can put power onto the grid from our products. But the answer to your question, why be entirely renewably energized? We do not need to do any on-site work or preparation to make the product work. And it's removing that construction and electrical work that dramatically reduces the impact associated with the deployment of the EV charging station. That's the chief reason to be off-grid. And then, of course, the other benefits, you don't get the utility bill. And then, very importantly, we're going to continue to fuel vehicles during grid interruptions, which, whether we like it or not, are more common today than they've ever been in our history at a time when we're more reliant on electricity than we've ever been. We have a strategic petroleum reserve to make sure we don't run out of diesel and gasoline. There is no strategic electric reserve to make sure that electric vehicles charge in the future, except for our products. We are that reserve. We are that safety gap. So those are the reasons that it's so important to be off-grid. And of course, if you care about the environment, and we do, but you don't have to, then driving on sunshine is certainly the sort of ultimate promise of an electric vehicle. Certainly. That's a good point about there being no strategic electric reserve, at least while energy storage, I guess, is in shorter supply. Desmond, so if you're not grid connected, you're running completely on sunshine, how many vehicles can be charged per day? And I'd assume if they were being fast charged and powered by solar panels, there would definitely be a limit there per day, right? Yeah, so just starting with the last part of your question, there are three standards for charging in the United States today, often referred to as levels one, level two, and then DC fast charging. We provide all three levels of charging with our products and 100% off grid. Even the fast charging, more like a gas station experience, we do that with our products. But to get back to how many cars can we charge, I'm not going to dodge that question, but I'd like to reframe it if I may and just say this. To you. The metric, which is most important to us, is how many miles can we deliver in a day, driving miles. And it's less important to us whether we deliver those miles to two or three vehicles or 10 or 20 vehicles. And that's because people drive miles. So that's the metric that we go back to. Now, our EV Arc product, electric vehicle autonomous renewable charger, underline autonomous because it's not connected to anything, not even the ground, it's a gravity mounted system. That product is going to generate and store enough electricity to power 
up to 250 driving miles in a day from a single parking space with no grid connection. Now let's put that in perspective. The Department of Transportation tells us that the average U.S. sedan drives about 30.4 miles per day. They also tell us that eight out of 10 commuters require less than 24 miles for their round-trip commute. And then the final statistic I'll give you is that government fleet vehicles drive between 20 and 30 miles a day on average. You can quickly see that we can actually charge multiple vehicles and offer them their full daily range replenishment, or what we call DRR. And the crucial thing to understand here is that we're moving away from this go from full to empty and then go somewhere special to fill up, which is what we've been taught to do with gasoline vehicles. And now we're charging electric vehicles a lot more like we charge our cell phones. We're doing it opportunistically. We're doing it every time we can. And in the case of these vehicles, we're replacing the DRR, or the daily range replenishment every day. And as long as we do that, we're gonna keep those vehicles full all the time and our product's gonna charge lots of vehicles, as many as six at the same time and anywhere up to 20 government fleet vehicles doing 20 miles a day. 250 miles, a typical electric vehicle has a capacity for 250 miles. So what's the interface like when a customer goes up to your, one of your stations? Is there a limit? How do you keep one station from being cleaned out by one car? That's a great question. Some of this is driven by behavior. But we also have technology for this. The first thing to point out is that actually what you just described is very rare. It turns out that electric vehicle drivers are already disinclined to go through that full empty cycle. They're kind of already learning that. I've been driving electric vehicles myself for 10 years now, and I can tell you I never do that unless I'm on a long drive, and then I'm going to use DC fast charging. Most people are plugging them in as frequently as they can and topping off. And sometimes we have to train them to do that. New York Police Department, for example, they're power users and those guys have got their minds full of other things they drive chevrolet bolts chevrolet bolt has a 270 mile range today they might have a tendency to think they could drive that vehicle for four or five days without charging it we have to train them not to think in that way and get them used to the idea of plugging in every time they return to the precinct it comes quickly to you when you are an ev driver but we do also have technology to do this we can limit the time of charge and then we can also use other technologies to turn the charger off or down after the vehicle's been there for a period of time but it's important to point out we don't make those policies. Our customers do. We sell the customer an infrastructure solution, and then we let them decide how they want to manage the charging. Uh, we'll certainly help them and advise them, but at the end of the day, our customers make that decision. That brings up a good point, this idea that you want to basically charge every time you can. One of the things that I've been told is that batteries have a limited number of cycles. So if you're constantly charging them, you're, I guess, in effect, wasting the cycles. Am I thinking thinking about that wrong? Yes, you've touched on a subject which is definitely near and dear to everybody that owns an electric vehicle's heart. The fear of battery degradation is certainly something which exists. But I'm going to say to you that most of that fear is driven quite understandably by a lack of understanding of the technology. Today, battery cells and more importantly, the battery management systems that manage how the batteries charge and when they charge and their state of health and everything are good enough now, in fact, better than they need to be to ensure that more or less, no matter how you charge your electric vehicle, the battery will give you the service 
which you have been brought to expect by the manufacturer of that vehicle. And so for us, knowing that we're not damaging the batteries in any way, what we want to do is make sure that the user has the most seamless experience. And the best way for them to do that is to find their vehicle full every time they want it. I've had several conversations with folks in the transmission space about the disruption that we could face as charging stations become more widespread. That's a lot of load in locations that were retail, light commercial. And you spoke at the very beginning, your solution isn't grid connected. So I assume that has its benefits there because I think there's going to be a lot more draw on the system in a lot of these locations around the country that haven't been high load areas, right? I think you are able to sidestep that. Yes, this is a multi-layered issue. It turns out that a very large percentage of properties have insufficient circuit capacity to charge electric vehicles at the property level. It further turns out that lots of neighborhoods at the sort of substation level, if you like, speaking about the grid, have insufficient circuit to charge a lot of electric vehicles. And then we can go all the way through the chain, through distribution and transmission that you're involved with up through generation. And what we're going to find is that the US grid, and by the way, this is true of the global grid, has nowhere near enough capacity to charge the entire electrification of transportation, which is going to happen without a question in the next couple of decades. Elon Musk just recently stated that he thinks capacity would have to double at least to support this. I think there are ways that we could do it with less than a doubling of capacity. But I'll tell you what, the bottom, the low end of the increase is going to be at least 40%. Now, you're in transmission. You will understand better than most that adding 40% capacity to the grid, that's power plants, that's transmission infrastructure, that's distribution, substations, and everything else. To increase that by 40% is, frankly, a pipe dream. And there is no way that it will happen fast enough to provide the capacity required for the electrification of transportation. So, yes, having an off grid, locally generated, locally stored solution that doesn't rely on the grid, isn't vulnerable to the centralized vulnerabilities that come with the grid, and actually enhances and strengthens the grid by doing this, is going to be very, very important. And that's the big part of our business strategy. Desmond, you say there's no permitting for your solution. How much permitting is required for a charging station? We have never been required to permit an installation. And that's because we make a piece of equipment, which we drop off. Now, it's a 20-year lifespan piece of equipment. It's permanent, but it's transportable. But we have never been required to get a permit in any jurisdiction. On the grid-tight charging, there are a whole host of different permits which are required. Building permits, electrical permits, special inspections for concrete work, special inspections for trenching work, and then any number of other things that might come up in the local jurisdiction where you're operating. Those things are not only expensive and time-consuming, but for some property owners, they can be quite risky too because that permitting process may open up other issues laying dormant. And that's something that most commercial real estate operators would be very loath to do simply to add EV charging that could cause other disruptions and expenses. And then remember, because our product is transportable, in the event that you've made a mistake in terms of locating our product, it can be moved. Whereas the grid-tied charger, that's a sunk cost, sunk investment. It's not moving. It's not going anywhere. And you would have to do all the permitting and everything again if you decided to install in a new location. 
Okay, so who are your typical customers? Who's buying these charging stations? I'd imagine they'd be retailers who buy them from you and place them in their parking lots, for instance. Who are you selling these to? Without wishing to sound blithe here, the fact is anybody who has a need to install an electric vehicle charging station and prefers not to go through the permitting, construction, electrical work and utility bills and everything else is a prospect for us. At the moment, better than half of our revenues come from government fleet operators. So the government is electrifying their fleet and they need somewhere to charge them. At the same time, we have lots of corporate customers who are offering workplace charging so that their employees can charge their electric vehicles when they come to work. And then there are other larger operators, Electrify America, for example, which is Volkswagen. They're deploying a nationwide network. They'll deploy a lot of grid-tied stuff. There are lots of locations where, for them, it makes more sense to deploy our product than it does to go through the grid process. And I have to tell you that one of the things I like the most about our business is that no matter who wins and who loses in the electric vehicle or the electric vehicle charging space, we'll win because we're agnostic to the EV charger, the service provider behind it, and we'll charge any type of vehicle. We'll provide the infrastructure to charge them all. And so no matter what cream rises to the top, we'll be there with it. I'm always curious about companies like yours who sell a product. Do you have any way to make post-sale revenue? You're not selling the electricity. How are you making money once people buy one of your charging stations? It's a great question. And it's one of Wall Street's favorite questions as well. As you can imagine, we trade on NASDAQ. And of course, that's a question that comes up a lot from the banking community. Recurring revenue. Currently, we generate a fairly minor and insignificant amount of recurring revenue through extended warranties and also through data plans. All of our units are connected across the web using wireless connections. So we get a great deal of data from them and we share that with our customers for a fee. It's a minimal amount of revenue for us. Recurring revenue is not something that we're really going after heavily on that side of the business because there's so much growth opportunity in front of us right now. We will grow our way beyond any recurring revenue in terms of revenue growth. But it's important also to point out that we have just announced our media-funded network business unit. We just closed our first major city where we will deploy a network of our products across the city. It'll be free to the taxpayer and free to the EV driver. So think of that. They'll be able to drive on sunshine guilt-free, environmental impact-free, and the best free of all, free-free. And this will be monetized by a sponsorship slash naming rights agreement. Very similar to what Citibank does when they put their name on City Bike in New York. It's a famous bike-sharing program. And that will be a recurring sponsorship or naming rights agreement. And that will be, frankly, the highest gross profit recurring revenue business I've ever been involved with. And I've been involved with some doozies. So this is a good one. And it's a 2021 and forward business unit for us. Do the EV customers have to pay for the electricity that they draw from your stations? And why wouldn't that be a revenue source for either you or the customer who buys your station and installs them on their property? Very hard to make money selling electricity unless you're a large and entrenched monopoly. It's a capital intensive business and just the administrative back ends that you need to manage it. Kilowatt hours are cheap. We all like to complain about the price of our utility bills. But at the end of the day, if you think what you do with electricity, 
electricity. After water, it's the cheapest, best value thing that any of us use, even in expensive regions, right? Selling electricity doesn't really sound like a very interesting business model to me. Having said that, lots of our customers do do that. They decide whether or not they give the charging away or charge for it or restrict it for employees or guests or whatever. They make all those decisions. We help them with technology to make it easy to make those decisions, but they make those decisions. At the end of the day, we're much more interested in the media revenue. Just like you used to lick a stamp and buy an envelope and a piece of paper, and now you do the same thing for free using Gmail, what we're just saying is let's revolutionize the fueling model here and say instead of paying at the meter, as it ticks over and you take units of energy, let's find more innovative and interesting ways of monetizing the fueling infrastructure in the future. And like Gmail has revolutionized sending a letter, we believe that our media model and others will revolutionize the fueling transaction. And we're uniquely positioned to do that because we have no unit cost for energy and we have fixed costs where the deployment of the network is concerned. So highly forecastable fixed cost to deploy the network because it's just product, not project, and no unit cost of energy allows us to do these fantastically innovative fueling models moving down the road. And as a consumer, I'm really looking forward to that. And so just to be clear, the customers who buy your charging stations, they can install essentially a meter and charge. They can, yes, they can and do. So Desmond, do you see this as a market where your customers can get revenue or will one day this be more like free Wi-Fi where it's a sunk cost, but there's a benefit that drives, no pun intended, customers to the locations that have charged available. What do you ultimately say? I think one of the great things about EV charging is that unlike our current fueling model, which is we all do the exact same thing. We go to a disgusting gas station, we put a nozzle in our vehicle, and then we watch the meter tick over and there's a financial transaction right there now. That's what we've been doing for 100 years. EV charging is going to allow for a whole variety of different business models. There will certainly still be some locations which are like gas stations where you go and pay for a unit of energy. There will be other locations where it's given to you for free, your place of work or a mall or a hotel. And then again, there may be other places where it's subsidized or perhaps you get some of it for free. And then if you stay there for a long time and take a lot, you pay for the sort of extra parts of it. We're going to see the transaction around fueling changing and being much more variable than it is today. And that's just a great thing because it allows lots of innovative businesses to come up with even more innovative business models and find different ways to attract customers and retain customers, provide them with fuel and provide them with all sorts of other things. And they'll be able to make the decision themselves about how they want to monetize that. And that's something we've never been able to do before. The decision about how to monetize fuel before has been driven by cartels like OPEC and large companies and foreign governments. We're now moving into a position where we're really going to democratize the fueling transaction and allow innovation and the market to drive it rather than monopolies, essentially. I'm curious how you see the market for charging stations evolving. I think we thought they might be at home or at a conventional gas station where an EV would need to get topped off. But there's also the commercial space. And we also talked at the very beginning about the strain on our grid, right? Where really the only time that there's really free space 
place for electric vehicles to charge would be in the middle of the night. So that would make you think, well, maybe most of the charging will occur at home during what we call the off-peak hours. So where do you see charging happening and where do you think we're really going to do most of our charging? Controversially, perhaps, I'm going to say in neither of the locations that you've cited. Um, <laughs> so the industry likes to talk about this ideal, I would say, of everybody charging at home. But the simple fact of the matter is that that's an ideal which is not borne out in reality. And this is because many Americans, many global citizens, do not live in single-family residences with garages that they can park their cars in and sufficient capacity to charge their vehicles. In fact, the great majority of global citizens live in multi-dwelling units, vertical cities increasingly, without parking spaces for their vehicles. I think charging at home works for early adopters, people like me. I'm very lucky. Everybody else is going to charge everywhere else. Just by virtue of owning a vehicle, we know they go somewhere and they dwell when they go there, whether that's the supermarket, their office, the cinema, the coffee shop. In any of those locations, they will be able to pick up a charge. And that's what we're going to see happening. Gas stations, and I should be careful what I say here because oil companies inevitably are our customers, but I think charging in a gas station is about the worst idea I've ever heard. As an EV driver, one of the great delights of being an EV driver is that one never has to go back to gas stations. And I think going somewhere special to fuel your vehicle will feel as weird as it would be if someone suggested you had to go somewhere special to charge your cell phone. So I think gas stations, frankly, it's a stopgap. You may see some fast charging in gas stations as a way to try and sort of figure out what to do with that real estate for a while. But at the end of the day, we're going to have ubiquitous charging. It'll be everywhere you go, just like Wi-Fi is everywhere you go. And you will just charge your vehicle casually while you're doing other things at the location that you wanted to go to, rather than going to a location that you didn't want to go to just to fuel your vehicle. I firmly believe that we're moving to a future where wireless charging Charging that doesn't even require you to plug the vehicle in is going to become a reality and a commonplace mainstay. And when that happens, think of that fantastic future. Now you will go to your mall or to your cinema or to your coffee shop. You'll pull onto our product. Your car will fill up with sunshine. When you walked away from it, you didn't have to do a single thing. And I really believe that's coming. And that kind of convenience is what consumers will demand. And fortunately, the technology allows for it. I spoke to a guest a few weeks ago about California's recent decision to mandate new cars be electric by, I think, 2035. And one of the big concerns he had was the exact same point you had, which was, look, a lot of people don't have garages. Take Los Angeles. A lot of people live in apartments and have to park on the street. How is that going to work? Are they going to basically have to go shopping <laughs> and then park at a shopping center in order to get their car charged? Los Angeles has already publicly announced that they will need something in excess of 84,000 public EV charging stations in the next couple of years. By 2027, I think, was the year that they sort of oddly chose. The state of California will need three to five million public charging stations in order to fulfill Governor Newsom's requirement for a ban on internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. And to be clear, Governor Newsom is only 
putting himself in good company with all the other leaders of the civilized world by doing that. There really isn't a civilized country that you can find anywhere in the world that hasn't announced a ban on internal combustion engine vehicles sometime between 2025 and 2040. So there's nothing controversial about what he's announced. Listen, the great thing is that, as I mentioned already, everybody that owns a car owns it because they go somewhere. Far from this being a burden upon them, assuming the charging infrastructure is in place, and I believe that we and others will make sure it is, this will be the greatest thing that's ever happened to consumers from a transportation point of view. Your guest is right. They will not be able to charge at home, but they will be able to charge everywhere they were already going. So it's not that they'll have to go shopping. They were already going shopping. It's not that they'll have to go to the cinema or to the office or to any of these other places. They were already going there. We'll just make the time that their car is parked much more useful for them. Instead of just sitting idle in a space depreciating, now at least it will be fueling and saving them that horrible trip to the gas station that they previously had to make. Desmond, uh, we're gonna finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Clean to burn, but dirty to transport. Crude oil. Dinosaur. Nuclear. Unnecessary, dangerous, and not cheap. Coal. Fantastic technology that led us through the Industrial Revolution. Dinosaur. Wind. Very useful, but highly location dependent. Solar. The best and most ubiquitous form of renewable energy. Biofuels. Worrying because of the impact that they have on the rest of the planet, growing the plants. Hydroelectric. Useful, but also worrying because of environmental impact. Geothermal. Excellent, but highly location-specific. Energy storage. Essential. Electric vehicles, essentially your family. Essential, but better than that, fantastic improvements for the consumer. Energy efficiency. Essential. And then finally, fusion power. Fabulous theory, totally unnecessary, and renewables will displace it before it's ever ready to be commercialized. All right. Desmond Wheatley, Beam Global, thank you so much for your time. Jay, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you to you and to your listeners. That was Desmond Wheatley, Chairman, President, and CEO of Beam Global, an EV charging solutions company. In September, Beam changed its name from Envision Solar. Desmond says one of the problems with the old name was their salespeople had to explain to potential clients that they weren't just a rooftop solar installer. I mentioned to him that the new name for me makes me think of wireless charging, as in beaming electricity to the EVs. He's confirmed there's a patent pending. I want to thank Desmond for his time as well as Meryl Dreste at Bullite Group for setting this up. Meryl and her team set me up with Plug Power back in episode 66. Always great to work with them. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 102. Be sure to join us next week when we discuss a geothermal breakthrough that can bring comfort to your own home. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. Thank you.